0: Will you pray with me? Our Father, we do pray that as um, we look at your word and look at your truths, that you would, uh, you would move in our hearts according to our need. And as a result, Lord, through your church, through your people, that you would multiply your love and your justice in this world as, uh, as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And we give this time to you, we consecrate it to you in Jesus' name, amen. If I were to ask any of you, as people of faith in Jesus, if you believed uh, that we are to be God's voice in the world, I doubt whether anyone would say no. And yet there is a growing paradox. Gabe Lines of the organization uh, Q has written, Christianity has gained more conversions in America over the last 200 years than any other faith. And simultaneously, Christianity has steadily lost cultural influence despite its rapid conversion growth. Why? Well, it's complicated, as most things in life are. But there are several reasons that could be pointed out. But one of the principal ones was a reaction against liberal churches of the early 20th century which preached a social gospel which advocated legitimate social engagement while also denying the fundamental truths of the Christian faith, Jesus' virgin birth, his deity, his humanity, his miracles, his death on a cross for our sins, his resurrection, and his second coming, all those realities that when we embrace them give us hope and give humanity hope. And if you ask how can a church call itself Christian and deny these things, it's complicated. But every major denomination and group that came out of the 16th century reformation that brought us back to the essentials of only scripture, only grace, only faith, the reason why we exist as a church, every group went the liberal road in different measures of denying the faith. And that gave rise to the many groups that wanted to return to the faith, independent and denominational, Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal, that grew in the 20th century. But along with that was a hesitancy, or worse, of entering into the real social conversations of the day that involved people and the injustices and wrongs that were part of society. In the broad picture, and there were always exceptions, Christian churches did not want to engage those conversations in the public square as a reaction against this social gospel. Thus, there was an increasing divide between sacred and secular, ministry belonging in the church, and all other work outside the church as not being thought of as ministry, with the primary focus being getting people to heaven and explaining spiritual realities of my personal relationship with God often to the neglect of the real-life social and people concerns that were part of society's fabric and ills. And that brings us today to look at why God's people need to be his voice in the world. And so we're going to briefly look at our, our identity, our mandate, and application of that and we begin on page one of the Bible. If you want to turn to that uh, Genesis chapter one, the very first page in the Bible that speaks of who we are. Our identity. Creation to creation. God creates the heavens and the earth and the universe with a beauty and a complexity and a magnificence, all reflecting his majesty, his power, his enormity, but not like him but not like him. As if God said within the Trinity, within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all this beauty and glory, all that we've created cannot respond to us or cannot respond to each other as we do with our community. Let's make someone who can. And so we read in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates humanity and bestows on them, male and female, the highest dignity and value that anyone could give. And Psalm 8 expresses it so beautifully. You have made him a little lower than God. Think about that. A little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Male and female are made the crown of creation, And to highlight this beauty of man and woman together being the crown, equally reflecting God, God says in Genesis 2 that it wasn't good for man to be alone, that he would create a helper corresponding to him. Now the word helper is a very, very significant word, and it's the Hebrew word ezer. And that's an easy word to remember, ezer, ezer, helper, a word loaded with significance in our talk today. This word appears 21 times in the Old Testament, 16 times referring to God, referring to Yahweh, or Yahweh, which is the word Lord in your translations, the specific covenant name of God, as being the helper, the help of his people. So in Deuteronomy 33, we read, Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, or in Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So the word is generic for help, but most often refers to God and usually with military connotations. Where does that leave us here in Genesis 2 describing the woman as the help to the man? It highlights that w- woman was created to be an ally, which is probably the best translation of that, an ally, a help to man in every sense of the word to make complete the reflection of God's image in the world. And not just with reference to marriage as here in Genesis 2, because this account is of the creation of woman as a part of the total reflection of God's image and not just the beginning of marriage. And that brings us back to the Genesis 1 verses. When the man and woman were told to multiply and fill the earth, it wasn't just referring to procreation, having babies. As humanity made like God, everywhere they went and everything they did, they would be a showcase of who God is by creating culture through who they were and what they did, ruling over all. Now, keep in mind, ruling over all, that is kingdom language. They were to rule on behalf of the king of creation. They would take the raw materials of creation that God made and create and develop them in every domain of society through all the different vocations and callings of life so that humanity would multiply and flourish and reflect God in it all so that, in the words of 1 Corinthians, whatever they ate or drank or whatever they did, they would glorify God. They would showcase God. And my friends, that's what culture is. Culture is what we make of the world. And we all do it. We all make culture. We can't help but do it. So before Genesis 3 happened, for a little while, we don't know how long, Adam and Eve Perfectly reflected God's love and justice and creative work. And if you're interested in where that picture came from, see me afterwards. The brief picture in Genesis 2 is of man working creatively to name the animals, and in so doing, his aloneness is highlighted. And then woman is created from his side. Not from his head or his feet, but corresponding to him as his ally in life man and woman, perfectly reflecting God's love in oneness without shame and injustice, creatively cultivating and keeping the Garden of Eden. Please do not miss this. Our original mandate from God, our identity, who he created us to be as his sons and daughters, is his imitator, like him his vice-regent, his kingdom worker for the king of kings and lord of lords, a culture maker, making the world to reflect who God is, all of which glorifies him. We reflect him and are the means of his work in the world. So if Genesis 3 didn't happen and Genesis 1 was fulfilled, what would we have? We would have a whole world that reflects God's multifaceted glory in which humanity flourishes in perfect relationship with one another and God, a world characterized by shalom. And what's important for us to recognize is that God has not rescinded that mandate. He's not canceled it. In fact... Jesus renewed it and updated it, in his last words in many different places go into all the world. Those words of Jesus in the Gospels take us back to Genesis 1 and filling the earth with the image of Christ. We are his voice, his imitator, his vice-regent, his culture maker in this world for the flourishing of humanity and the glory of God. And I need to ask ourselves, my friend, how many of us think of ourselves in that way? As an imitator of God, a vice-regent of the king of creation, and a culture maker. How many of us think of ourselves as that way? And what if we did? And what if God's people throughout the length and breadth of the land did? We all know the fall happened. We see the consequences all around us. Fear, shame, guilt, broken relationships, injustice, poverty, disease. Genesis 3 has been rightly called the vandalism of shalom. And that touches all of us, some to a greater extent than others, in the loving sovereignty of God that we cannot explain. And regarding men and women's issues... The issues in our world revolving around sexuality and gender identity begin here in Genesis 3. The woman's pain in childbirth, perhaps also referring to the difficulty in parenting. And her desire to rule over the man man contrast with man's rule over the woman. Relational violations and difficulties between men and women at home and the workplace are as old as history. And it's no coincidence that the one flesh relationship between man and woman that was to mirror the love and unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and of Christ and his church, it was, it's no coincidence that that relationship becomes the primary relationship in the world to manifest injustice. And Jesus enters to reverse all that. He enters to reverse the fall. We call it redemption. Not just about getting people to heaven, as important as that is. Jesus and his disciples announced the good news of the kingdom, bringing taste of the kingdom blessing that Jesus inaugurated with a view to redeeming all things for which Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we come to Jesus, he begins the great reversal. Guilt with forgiveness, shame He reverses with honor, broken relationships with reconciliation, oppression with deliverance, disease with healing, poverty with economic well-being. But we all know too well that these are only an antipasto. Before the meal, that means. That's the Italian word, before the meal. Awaiting the banquet. There are tastes in this world that we give people. The taste of the future banquet of shalom when God completes his reconciliation of all things and we are the word, we are the voice of reconciliation. It's a holistic word and it addresses all of life wherever people live and work and whatever they go through, body, soul, and spirit. In every sphere of life, in your home, neighborhood, job, church, township, you will have opportunities to reflect God's love, his justice, and his work. And we would readily admit that we are called to love people well, both our friends and our enemies, no matter how difficult that may be. We are not so used to thinking that we are just as much called to reflect his justice in the world. What is involved with that? Amy Sherman, in her excellent work, Kingdom Calling, highlights three dimensions of God's justice. First, rescue, which is remedying expressions of injustice. We heard about that this morning in the trafficking issue. Psalm 82.4 says, Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. God's people should be tip of the spear in that. Secondly, equity, which refers to fairness and impartiality in decision-making and judgment, which gave rise to the women's movement and the International Women's Day that we're speaking of today. And third, restoration, the ultimate purpose of God's justice, to reverse the effects of injustice and sin, bringing healing and wholeness to relationships with God and one another. So trafficked women and children need restoration and not just rescue. Do we see ourselves as God's kingdom instruments to reverse the fall, bringing kingdom blessing? That's who we are. That's who we are as the beloved children of God. That's who we are. That's what our salvation is for. So our mandate, we find in Matthew 28, Uh, and every other place, go into all the world. What does that involve? Well, there's the specifics. For instance, we've seen in Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. And interestingly, believers are called aliens because this is not our home. And so we see where has he sent us. He sent us into where are our cities and neighborhoods and such. And so we read in Proverbs 11, 10 and 11, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. The righteous are those who believe in God and serve others in their sphere. Okay. Whatever prosperity they have is with integrity, stewarding their success for the good of the community. In other words, they bless the community. And a few months ago, we heard the story of the Hanoi International Fellowship, in which that's a picture of a gathering of one of two nights in which 30,000 people gathered to hear Franklin Graham, and in which more than 4,000 people made professions of faith in Jesus and wanted to follow him. That event was preceded by several years of blessing the city through the the speaker that we heard when he came here, Jakob Bloomberg. We want to be the kind of people that others in our community might say, I don't share their beliefs, but I'm sure glad they're here. Proverbs 31, 8, 9, we heard it referred to earlier this morning. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And these verses, we've heard them before, they highlight that the poor and needy cannot do this for themselves. And the scriptures speak much of widows, orphans, and immigrants, and the poor. Perhaps they can't understand the language or the laws, or can't afford something, and they don't have the wherewithal. They need a helper. They need an ally. And we heard that this morning. And forgive the personal story, but about 25 years ago, we were home from Italy for a year, and we were at the park on Juniper Road near our home. And we met an immigrant father and four of his children. He had more of them. He and his wife were expert tailors from the Ukraine who did work for the Kremlin. But they were new here with very little. So we befriended them. We invited them in different ways. We invited them to Grace Chapel here, but they did not have enough to get established. But I had an Italian uncle who knew people. And he knew where we could get a professional sewing machine. This church bought it for them. This family now has an established business. And the way they look at our family, you would think we were angels sent from heaven and all we did was make friends in the park. Steve and Judy could give us many examples of that. And opportunities as well. Leviticus 19 says, Regarding the stranger who resides with you, you shall love him as yourself, for you are aliens. And the word stranger there, keep in mind that for the Israelites, the stranger was from a different country with a different faith and a different worldview than the Israelites. What does this mean for us, for our application? Well, any time we seek to apply scripture, it needs to be both vertical and horizontal. Whatever God is to us in our personal relationship with us, we need to then take that down horizontally. What does that mean for our neighbors? Personally, for today's theme, celebrating women and our challenge to be his voice, men, men, young and old, we can ask, have there been ways that I have not treated the women in my personal sphere, whether in the home, the workplace, the church, young, or old, with respect? Are there ways that I have not treated them with respect, dignity, and value as equal image bearers of God? Or have I belittled, belittled them with jokes, cynicism, simply treating them as objects of pleasure or worse? Lots of cultural values that affect this, that we may be blind to. I'm still learning what it means to love my wife because I didn't have the best example from my father. He was a good example. He, and he came to know the Lord. He grew in his faith. But he also reflected his Italianness. You laugh, but just like every ethnic culture represented in this room needs to deal with this, I do not know of a culture, aside from Jesus transforming culture through us, I do not know of a culture that does not need to address the issues of how men treat women and vice versa. Every single culture on the face of the earth is affected by that. There are matriarchal cultures versus patriarchal cultures, and societies, shame versus honor, that all comes into this. And one of the reasons these issues continue, going back to the example of my dad, is that the church did not speak into this, but stayed on the service. And in order to understand this and to see if there's been violation of this, my friends, you will probably need to ask the women in your sphere. And they will need to have the safety to express it to them, to express it to you. In a societal or community setting, this church collectively, in its teaching and actions and community, is God's voice. That means we will be engaging social and political topics about which people think differently, with different worldviews, different perspectives, different faith traditions, not to speak of the normal difficulties of getting along with people, but which all involve addressing the wrongs that people face. And we must learn how to do that. Billy Graham was a person who did that with all different kinds of people, all different political parties. I love what he says here. I'm not for the left wing or for the right wing. I'm for the whole bird. (laughs) And that's just as true for us. We are God's voice to all people. And he did that. Billy Graham did that with humility and grace in all different contexts. Then, individually, we might ask, in my networks, where do I see aspects of injustice and brokenness and need for which I can be a voice? Now, I am not speaking about, at this point, about adding another activity to your schedule. Though, for some of us, we may need to relinquish some formal activities that we're involved in to allow time to meaningfully meaningfully interact with people. But what I'm speaking about is having our antennas up so that in the normal living and working situations of life, we notice where God may want to use us. We may know someone who's in prison. We may know someone who is hungry or thirsty or naked or someone needing to be invited into our home. Those things Jesus mentioned in con- He mentioned it in the context of how we would be judged. We might see an expression of racism, we might see someone being bullied at school or at work, and we cannot remain silent. And there's risk involved. There's risk involved. I close with an illustration from my supervisor, my current supervisor with Crossworld at illustrates something like this well. Years ago, Jim, who was my supervisor, was an executive in a large tech company, brand new on the job, and he was faced with the decision to follow company policy or care for one of his employees who was out on medical leave and who was gay and had AIDS. It was very scary then, 1987. It was very scary then. And many conservative Christians almost jubilantly viewed AIDS as God's judgment on sinners, publicly mocking and ridiculing, as can still happen today, publicly mocking and ridiculing both victims and any who would seek to help them. And not only, but for legal reasons, it was forbidden for management to contact employees on medical leave for fear that it could be construed as attempting to engage them in work and a judgment could come against the company. What should he do? Reach out and risk his job or follow company policy, which was based on good reasons. Jim had decided before going to this new job to no longer hide his faith, but to declare his love for Christ in his first meeting with his new team. So he prayed, but he already knew the answer. Christ held nothing back for him, so he wanted him to hold nothing back. So he found his personal record, contacted him, and was welcomed by him, found out that his Christian family, father being a pastor, had disowned him, didn't know, and didn't know he was dying. This young man thought that God hated him and would be damned forever. My colleague assured him of God's love and invitation to receive his love. It didn't happen then. There was a months-long journey with my colleague simply befriending him. But in one of his crises, literally on a gurney in the hospital as he was going in for tests, he did receive Christ. He cried out to Jim and re- wanted to receive them. him, Christ. Jim eventually reached out to this employer's employee's father who, with his wife, came to visit his son who was in a coma. Jim told him that. Jim never saw them again, but heard from them. They reconciled as a family, the son going home to live with his parents and die there. And Jim writes, I remember this story far beyond anything else that happened that year. All my team's sales record and successes pale in comparison." Thank you, Jesus, for the joy I experienced in believing you. Jesus' first sermon, his first announcement of why he came, is something I would like to say together, and we can stand as we say this together and f- for a moment. Shall we repeat this and close our message? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If Jesus announced that, we are his voice in the wilderness, so to speak, seeking the shalom of those around us. May he open our eyes to see who he is who we are as his imitators, kingdom workers, and culture makers, and how he wants us to integrate that in all of life for the advancement of his kingdom until he restores all things. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed open our eyes not just to you and not just to ourselves, but to give us the antennas for the people around us and open our eyes to everything around us and all the situations of life, that we may be your voice, that we may be your people, that we may be your hands and feet in this world so that people may see a reflection of you in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Hi. My name is Allison, and I was asked by the prayer team um, to pray over the congregation today as we digest the information we were given. For those that were a part of the adult Bible study this morning, it's hefty, it doesn't sit well, and it shouldn't because it's not okay. And we are a part of making it better, we are a part of reaching out to the people as reflected in John's message. Um, And for trafficking in particular, To not forget that that's also a male situation. There are young men that are also trafficked. So we need to have our eyes open as a community because it happens everywhere around us. Um, So the prayer team has asked to focus on Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 as a congregation. So I encourage you guys to spend some time on your own reading that. As I was reading over it in light of what the message was going to be and what the panel was going to be about, I also read before and after it, and it speaks to faith. Before it talks about um, this passage in particular, um, he addresses faith. And then after it, he gives an encouragement to not grow weary. So we heard some very heavy things today and we were reminded of our call to action. So I just wanna pray for us that as we do that, as we reflect on what it's like to run the race, to be a cloud of witnesses, to be the community that can be the safe harbor for the people who need us, that God cares about us too. And he wants to keep us encouraged and strong as as we fulfill what he's asking of us. So I'd love to pray over us before the last one. Um, Father, thank you so much for a morning where if our eyes were not already open to some injustices that are in our world, that have been there, that have strong roots, that those are still there just in different ways than what we read in the history books, Um, Thank you for opening our eyes. For those of us who had an awareness, thank you for the reminder. Um, Thank you so much for your spirit. Thank you that you provide your word, you provide your community, and you provide your spirit to fill us and encourage us as we do our job, as your children, to care for your other children. We pray that as a congregation, we would be so full of your spirit that we cannot ignore what you have opened our eyes to. That as we walk down the street, as we drive to work, as we find ways to incorporate this new information into our workplaces and maybe attend trainings and see what we can do in all the layers that there are, we just we pray that we are so full of your spirit that we we can't we can't close our eyes, we can't ignore, and we have um, the spirit to keep us in tune with you of what you would be asking of us. So thank you that you know it's not easy to be your voice for all people, that it's not easy to be the one fulfilling your mandate, but we thank you so much that you give us you, and you give us your spirit to fill us head to toe that can pour out of us into the community around us. Amen.